an amazing time in worship, right? So, so, so good. And I love that teaching, Stephen. Thank you, man. That was a very encouraging um, teaching. Good exhortation that talk about simple obedience and using our children as an example. It made me think, uh, I don't think he knows my children. Uh, kidding. Um, well, let's continue with worship now with our time in God's Word. And this is the, the time, you know, we've been singing to Him. We've been talking about Him. We've been giving to Him. This is the time when we just want to be quiet and listen um, as He speaks to us. Would you, would you grab your Bibles and find your place in Acts chapter 21? We've been walking through the book of Acts together for quite some time. Um, if you're wondering when it's going to end, hopefully uh, in just a couple of months, okay, we're... We're on the on the uh, nearing the end. So chapter 21, there's only 28 chapters uh, and uh, we'll, we'll be getting through there soon. Go ahead and stand with me, if you will. But we left off with uh, with Paul determining that he's going to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to stop him at, at every stopping point on his journey. He's welcomed by brothers and he's warned of the dangers that await him in Jerusalem. And Paul resolves to go anyway. Even though he knows that suffering will come. We were reminded last time about how that's just like Jesus, right? Uh, he, he knew that suffering was coming, uh, but he resolved to go anyway. Paul, being compelled by the love of Christ and his love for his brothers, the Israelites, he refuses to live for his own safety, his own comfort. Instead, he chooses to live for the glory of King Jesus. So he's on his way. He's come into Jerusalem now. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 21, beginning verse 17. Scripture says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you. That you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in. And the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. 
This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesians, the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. And we'll stop there for today. Let's pray together. Lord, we look now to the word of God. To hear from the spirit of God. Lord, would you grow our roots deeper into the gospel and help us live boldly that all may hear and hope in Christ. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, Paul knew things were going to get difficult in Jerusalem. That was no surprise to him. But maybe it shocked him how fast it all happened, how fast things spiraled out of control. I mean, just over a week into the city and he's had to you know, pay for four guys ceremonial fees. He's gotten a really bad haircut. He's been beaten by an angry mob. And uh, only to be rescued by Roman guards who drag him off and have him arrested. This is, this is a pretty rough week. You, you might have had a bad week. Paul had a really, really bad week, right? It was good up to that point, but he's only a week in. Until the, the visual prophecy of Agabus. Do you remember this guy, Agabus, who came and took Paul's belt and tied up his, his own hands and feet? And he said, this is going to happen to the man who owns this belt. It's only been like eight days. And that prophecy is coming true. So I want us to ask ourselves this morning, what is the Lord wanting to show us through this passage? Every time we open this book, we want to look for Christ. What is this teaching us about Jesus first? And secondly, what should we do? How should we live? So we notice, um, first of all, Paul and his friends, they're, they're well received. Uh, what I want to do with this message this morning is what I, I want to just kind of walk through the narrative. We're, we're reading and studying a, a narrative genre of scripture. So I want to just sort of walk through what happened and then we'll come back through at the very end and just make some some statements about it. So if you're a note taker and you're like waiting, it may be a minute. OK, so um, we'll get there, I promise. Um, but what we notice first is when Paul and his friends come into Jerusalem, they're well received. This is, a, this is a big enough deal for Luke to tell us about it. They spent the night at a guy named Manasseh in his house. And uh, these brothers are received warmly. 
That's good news because Paul has brought with him, he's brought along some of his disciples from his journey. So he's brought some Gentile believers, including a guy named Trophimus from Ephesus. And as he comes in with this sort of hodgepodge group of guys, the brothers in Jerusalem receive him warmly. Now, he might be thinking, this is not going to be so bad, right? Well, the next day, he goes to give a report to the church in Jerusalem. And he comes in and he meets um, with the Jerusalem church. And we notice here, uh, first thing, just an observation is that this church that was born at Pentecost, you remember the Holy Spirit came, Peter gave this big sermon, lots of people from all over, Jews from all over the world uh, heard about Christ, uh, believed in Jesus, were baptized into this church. This is that church. There, there are literally 10,000 Jewish believers in the Jerusalem church. But one of the things that we notice is that this church is now established just as Paul's been establishing churches on his travels. He's been establishing them and appointing elders in every church. And that's what we see here. It's no longer the apostles. No, it's elder. It's an elder led model. So James is not an apostle, but he's an elder. And James, by the way, is the half-brother of Jesus. He's also the one who's going to write the book of James later in the New Testament. But he's serving as the leader among equals, an elder-led group. So Paul and his guys, they come in to meet with the elders, and and they're going to share in detail, the Bible says, all the things that God has done. Isn't that great? It's great because there's no man taking credit. We've just read chapters of God doing some incredible miracles. And Paul's going to tell those stories in such a way that only God gets the glory for it. He says, I'm telling you, all that God has done. And when they heard about it, they glorified God. That's the the right response. I, I love the intentionality to acknowledge who's actually doing the work. But there's no telling how long this might have taken. The Bible says he told him one by one, or maybe your copy of the scripture says in detail. So, you know, my imagination makes it seem like it was a quick summary, but this is no quick summary. You know, like, uh, well, hey, we traveled here and we went there. We preached the gospel. We faced some pretty rough opposition, but God's good. That wasn't the story. This literally took maybe hours. I mean, the last three chapters in the book that we've preached over the last month, Paul is talking his way through those things with his own commentary, his own story, his own emphasis. This would have taken some time, but these guys wanted to hear all about it. Think about how um, important the impact of the gospel is. As the gospel is spreading, the kingdom of God is growing. People all over the place are repenting and believing and being grafted into the family of God. And the elders of this very first Christian church are are zoomed in to every detail of what Paul's saying because it matters. I love this. Well, this is a, a good reminder that time... Acknowledging the work of God is is well spent. That God deserves praise and glory, all of it, for everything that he's doing in your life and in my life. 
When, when we come together as believers, it's a great time to testify to what the Lord has done. There's plenty to share about what God has done, right? And yet somehow we all too often move right past moments for praise and on to our next point of need. It's like God swoops in and rescues and we're like, yes, all right, but I really have this problem, you know? I want to encourage you just in way of encouragement, take time to testify to the goodness of God. He's been so good. And recounting God's stories, it fuels our faith. Just this morning, I'm sharing with a young couple who long to have a child. I'm telling them about how I prayed with another couple for eight years that God would bless them with a baby. And God did it. And I'm just sharing stories of God's faithfulness. Why do I do that? Because it fuels faith. It fires up our worship. When we come together and we talk about the goodness of God and how he's blessed and what he's done, it's like we just want to we just want to praise him. Glorify this God because it's what he's done. And it fosters passionate evangelism. When we talk about the goodness of God, it's contagious. I think about the woman at the well. She met Jesus. She just couldn't help telling everybody. She couldn't stop herself. It makes you passionate, contagious as a follower of Christ. Take the time to testify to his goodness. Now, if our text ended there, we could talk about the joys of sending out missionaries and the the love of having them come back and and hear the stories and how our goal of making and multiplying disciples and planting churches, how God is making that a reality. We could, we could just celebrate the beauty of that moment, but that's not where our text ends. And it's also not where the moment ends for Paul. It seems that James and the elders quickly transitioned to a problem. I don't know if you noticed that. They said, Paul, we realize there's some incredible things happening Uh, And and we celebrate. Man, we're so pumped. But God has been saving a lot of Jews here too. Thousands. And they are zealous for the law. Did you see that phrase in your Bible? Now that's an interesting phrase. They are zealous for the law. So these Jewish believers have acknowledged Jesus as their Messiah. But rather at this point, rather than at this point in James's story, they they don't break for praise. Rather, James moves on to a problem. He says, these guys are zealous for the law. And Paul, they've been hearing rumors about you. They've heard some stuff that's stirring up problems. This is where things begin to get dicey, right? The word on the street is that Paul's telling the Jews that live out among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That's a big deal. To not circumcise their children, another big deal for Jews, and to forget all the ceremonial customs, another big deal. Let's just take a step back for a moment to realize what's happening here. Remember the grand story being told in the book of Acts is that the good news of salvation into the family of God, right? We're all, you're always saved into a family. Salvation into the family of God is stretching to all the peoples of the earth. 
Do we realize that's what's happening here in this story? In, this, in the book of Acts, we're seeing, we're seeing what we now believe going from a Jewish belief system to an all-the-world global belief. Do you realize that? And, and Jesus told us that was going to happen in Acts chapter 1, didn't he? He said, you will be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you'll be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. What was that last one? The ends of the earth. That's been the story that's been unfolding now for, for 20 plus chapters. And what we're seeing in moments like this are the growing pains of the early church. You see, they wanted to see the gospel spread. They just didn't want to lose their Jewishness in the process. I don't know if that resonates with you because most of us in the room are probably not Jew, Jewish. We don't hold to those Jewish customs. But here's something I want you to know. As the Lord broadens our horizons as a church, there will be change. Things change. And growing pains, that's, that's what we're seeing in the early church. What we have to learn to do is roll with that for the cause of the kingdom. We've already seen some of these growing pains happen in the book of Acts. Remember Acts chapter 10? Peter's given a vision of unclean animals coming in a sheet down to him. And the Lord says to him, Peter, take and eat. And Peter, pious Peter, says, no, Lord, I would never do that. Why did he do that? Because he's zealous for the law. He believes in Christ. But he's yet to see that this Messiah is not a Jewish Messiah. He's a Messiah for the whole world. Peter is zealous for the law, and so he refuses. Well, God rebukes him. He says, don't you say something is unclean that I have called clean. And when Peter awakes, he's called to go to a man named Cornelius's house, a Gentile. He's called to share the gospel with this family, to sit and have a meal with them. And it dawns on him, this is what the vision is all about. Peter is breaking his customs for the cause of the gospel. And God endorses the salvation of this Gentile family by sending the Holy Spirit in the same way that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Well then, five chapters later, the church in Jerusalem is having a really hard time letting go and having a really hard time with Gentiles coming into the faith. And so Peter stands up before the, before the council in Jerusalem and he, he says this in Acts 15. Verse 7 through 11. After there had been much debate, Peter, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about Cornelius. And he says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them his Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction." That's big. He made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by what? Faith. faith. Not by our customs, not by circumcision, not by the law, but cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, Peter says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This was a big moment in the early church. They're realizing that this gospel is not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles as well. Peter had come to see that Jesus is the savior for all the peoples. And he's bringing together a whole new people. He would write about it later and say a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. First Peter two nine. Well, this is where the Jerusalem church made accommodations for Gentiles. We read about it. They said, we've, we've sent Gentile believers a letter. You know, if they just don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols, they abstain from sexual morality, those kinds of things. Then, yeah, it's all good. They can come in and be a part of things. But there's still a problem. The issue now is not the Gentiles coming in. The issue now is that Paul's been telling Jews to forsake ceremonial law and customs. That they're of no saving value. That circumcision is not necessary for Gentile or for Jew. Only Christ is needed. And so there's a problem. The Jewish people hold tightly to their worth as the chosen people of God. And the idea that God would be choosing others who don't need to become Jews. And that God would be choosing Jews to believe who don't have to stay Jews customarily is a huge problem for them. But let's listen to what Paul says about this, because he writes specifically about it. First Corinthians seven. Paul says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. I'm really not sure how you do that. <laughs> just to be honest, um, I'm just mentally thinking there's a pro- there'd be a problem with trying to do that. Um, let him not try to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call, his salvation, uncircumcised? Now listen, this is the part that's a big deal. Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor Uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So it's not the ceremonies, but the commandments Paul's pointing emphasis to. This is a big deal. And the Jews are really upset about it. And the, the fact is, this, this rumor that James has brought to Paul's attention, it actually has some truth to it. Some. So how does Paul respond? Let's go back to our text for a minute. How does he respond to this? I mean, this is Paul the apostle. He's not afraid to speak his mind. He's not afraid to stand up to uh, to any kind of attack. He's not afraid at all. But Paul does not react. He doesn't interrupt with an explanation. James and the elders have a plan. They instruct him to do as they say. And at this point, you might expect Paul to sort of bow up and say, look, guys, don't you know who I am? Like, you've been here like law keeping. I've been out there leading people to Jesus. He doesn't do that. Paul shows great restraint, humility, and submission to the authority God had established. Wow. What a model for us on how to maintain unity in the body. So James tells Paul he should demonstrate 
that he too still lives in observance to the law by being ceremonially purified along with four other men. The hope is that this will put the rumors to rest. It will bring peace, maybe even help Paul's impact among these Jews in Jerusalem. So Paul complies. And for many, this is troubling. Like I read some commentaries this week and one commentary is just blistering Paul, calling him that this is sin. He's sinning here. He should not have done this. Well, and I get the, I get the point. So much of Paul's ministry to this point has been to preach grace, not law. So much of his ministry has been to welcome in Gentiles who have nothing to do with these ceremony, ceremonial uh, customs. And so why now would he shift gears? Why the compromise? It, it does seem like a compromise. And in some ways, it is. So why? Why would Paul compromise? Well, we've, we've already said he's humbly submitting to the elders of the church, seeking to maintain unity. But I believe there's a broader reason for Paul. So this is where your notes begin. Uh, consider Paul's missionary mantra. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23, Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them to the Jews. What does he say? I became a Jew in order to win Jews to those under the law. I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. That's interesting that I might win those who are under the law to those outside the law. Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. He's, he's walking a really tight line here. But here's his explanation. It's that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. That I might win the weak. Zone in right here. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Here's what I want to tell us. Paul is not compromising the message of the gospel. He's compromising for the mission of the gospel. The issue of ceremonial adherence is not a gospel central issue. He can do some of the ceremonial customs and not betray his faith in Christ alone. Traditions like this can be helpful. They just cannot be our hope. Paul is okay observing some of these ceremonies if it will build bridges for the gospel. But he knows the outer ritual purifications are just pointers to the ultimate purification through the blood of Jesus. Paul is willing to do anything that didn't compromise the gospel in order that people may hear and believe this good news. So two quick takeaways there at the top of your notes if you're taking notes. The first one is this. Rest in Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Our hope is not in what we can do. Customs, laws, rules. But what he has done. We rest fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's accomplished all of it. And so we rest in him. Secondly, risk for Jesus. Rest in Jesus and risk for Jesus. Paul's willing to do whatever he needed to do so people would hear the gospel. 
We don't compromise the message, but we fully commit to the mission. Let me just pause here to tell you the good news of the gospel. Legalism, like that of Judaism, is hopeless. Legalism looks inward for deeper resolve and determination. It says, come on, self, you can do this. But here's the truth. No, you can't. You didn't and you won't. And if your hope is in yourself, then you have no hope. Jesus, he is not the boost that you need to get your sorry tail across the finish line. Jesus is not the co-pilot to help you navigate through your own life a little better. Jesus came to do what you could not. And the gospel is good because the gospel says, don't look to yourself. Look to Christ. He has done it all. No matter, no matter who you are or what you've done, you can rest in Jesus alone. This is great news because it levels the field, right? And Paul's going to say this. It's neither Jew nor Gentile. It's neither male nor female. It's neither. He's going to go through a long list of ways that we divide ourselves. And he's going to say none of those things matter. Are you in Christ? It's great news because it levels the field. Here's the thing. No one is more or less deserving of the grace of God. We all come to Jesus broken and needy. Every human being. But let the law do its work to expose you. The Bible says in Romans 8, Tucker read it earlier, that in Jesus, God did what the law could not do. The law could not make you righteous before God. A sinner, that's me and you, can only be accepted by God through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Legalism. Legalism says this. Do good and be accepted. But the gospel says, in Jesus, you're accepted. Now do good. One of the reasons I love going to our local jail and working with Richard. I see Richard here today. Thank you, brother. One of our mission partners we support. I love going to the local jail. and Richard walks me in and I get to sit and talk with men. One of the reasons I love going. is because most of those men have been stripped of the pretense. I don't have to do all the hard work of deconstructing the idea of comparative self-righteousness. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say that? Comparative self-righteousness. Look, we, we, we know we've all sinned, right? We just don't think we've sinned as much as him or her. So while we can't claim personal perfection, we still hold on to our relative goodness compared to the next guy. Then based on our presumed goodness, we accept God. Church, this is ridiculous. The story of redemption is not 
pretty good people who accept God. But of a great and glorious God who accepts wicked sinners based on the perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus. The power and beauty of the gospel isn't seen in your acceptance of God, but his acceptance of you. Praise the Lord for his mercy and grace to all of us. Wicked sinners, undeserving of his grace and mercy. Back to our our text for just a few final thoughts. So what happens here? Does James and the elders plan for peace work? No. Why? This angry mob is stirred up. They attack Paul in the temple. The accusations are slung around that Paul is teaching everyone everywhere against the people. Our pride as a people. He's teaching everyone against the law. He's teaching everyone against this place, the temple. Moreover, they say, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. This was a serious accusation. Because Trophimus, the Ephesian disciple, is right there with Paul. He'd been seen with Paul. This accusation seems to have some tangible evidence. And this is the one that enabled immediate judgment. The temple courts, if you don't know, are divided into layers and Gentiles can only come so far. There's a gate with a sign that says any Gentile that goes beyond this point will be responsible for his own death. That's what it said. You can't come through here. You can't get any closer to God. Execution at this point could be immediate and carried out by anyone with no recourse. This mob is angry. They're going to do whatever it takes to destroy Paul. Here's the thing. Peace was not their plan. Truth was not their priority. And destroying this man and his message was their goal. Why? It's because these Jews had put their hope in the law and their ability to adhere to their rules and customs. The gospel declares that Jesus is our only hope. So today... We are actually at risk of replacing the good news of Jesus with our own religious rules at times. We learned this past year that um, everything can change in a split second. And if you hold on to your going to church as your righteousness, that can be taken from you, right? Um, If you hold on to your We could go through a list, right? Read your Bible. Do your devotion every day. Well, you might forget a few days. Then you're in trouble, right? If your righteousness depends on your ability to say your prayers before meals and at bedtime, especially meals in public, just to be sure. If that's your righteousness. Oh, we forgot. So the gospel Paul preaches is a righteousness in Christ alone. Let me walk through these realities. This is why this was such a clash. Here we go. If you're taking notes, here they come. Rules will not change us. We need a redeemer. Rules will not change us. We need a redeemer. These people 
who lay claim to righteousness based on their heritage and their adherence to laws and customs are now about to murder a man in the holy temple. (laughs) The hypocrisy. It's ridiculous. Outward allegiance will not change your heart. Jesus alone. There's a way to be clean on the outside, but dead on the inside. Jesus said, woe to you, Pharisees, for you clean the outside, but the inside is full of dead man's bones. Rules will not change you. You need a redeemer. Rules do not rescue. They reveal. If you're satisfied with working the system, checking all your religious boxes, you will reject the idea of a rescuer. I mean, who needs to be rescued, right? I can rule my way out of trouble. I, can, I, I forgot to check my boxes yesterday, but I'll check them today. We'll, we'll take care of it. I can rule myself out of it. But rules were never meant to rescue you. They were meant to reveal your need for a rescuer. They're never meant to help you save yourself, but to point you to the Savior. The law does not heal, but it does reveal. It's a bit like an x-ray machine. It shows you where you're broken, but it will not mend the brokenness. Only Jesus can rescue you. Maybe you're here today and you're checking boxes. Look to Christ. Rule lovers will be gospel haters. Self-righteous rule-loving is deadly, murderous even. Paul is the target of their hate because his gospel is destroying their self-help system. Listen to me, church. Self-help is not the gospel. You're no good to you. You need Jesus. The gospel message says you can't, but he did. Rule lovers will be gospel haters. Beware your tendency to love rules. And lastly, rules divide us. We see that right here in this text. Law establishes keepers and breakers. If all you're looking for is who's a law keeper and who's a law breaker, what you're going to find is you're going to find we're good and they're bad going to end up pitting people against one another. I'm I'm good. He's bad. But the gospel makes it clear. Jesus is good. Everyone else is bad. Christ, the righteous, came and suffered for sins in the place of the unrighteous to bring us a new redeemed people to God. While rules divide, The gospel unites at our point of our sinful need and the place of his saving grace. Church, let's cling tightly to Christ. Hold loosely to all the religious stuff that may be helpful, but cannot be our hope.